Hello, welcome to Muriel's Murders. I'm Muriel and I love true crime. I'm Nick and I'm not a fan. Thank you for joining us. Each week I force Nick to listen to me tell him a story of a true crime. This week, we give you part two of the Howard Buddy Jacobson story. So if you haven't listened to part one, go back and listen to that before you listen to this one, Mm -hmm. because you're going to get a recap from Nick, and we don't even know what that's going to be like. (laughs) Okay. We want to shout out four of the coolest people in the world, our newest Patreon members. We got Sarah H., Jackie P., Megan R., and Lauren H. Thank you so much. This podcast is entirely produced by Muriel and I, so if you're feeling Muriel's murders and you are in a position to throw us five bucks a month, which is like a dollar an episode when you count the Patreon exclusives, uh... Please be a member. Uh, find us at patreon.com slash Muriel's Murders. Okay. This is a true story involving murder, violence, drugs, adult themes, etc. So if any listeners are like Nick and they don't want to hear about those kind of things, please consider listening to a different podcast. Plus, we'll probably do a little cursing and joking. So if you're sensitive to that, turn us off. All right, Nikki. Are you ready to hear this story? No. Okay. Let's get started. Muriel can say something snarky about my recap skills, I'm just going to start. Okay, so I'm really into this story so far, and I can't help but picture it through the visual lens of Scorsese films like Mean Streets and Taxi Driver and a little king of comedy thrown in the mix, okay? okay? It takes place in New York City in the late 1970s. Muriel told us all about a man named Howard Buddy Jacobson, who is a tragic figure in the sense that he seems to have it all but is completely miserable nonetheless not that i can name the character but it sounds like an archetype shakespeare wrote about okay he was born into horse racing royalty and despite being incredibly successful and innovative in the field he hated every minute of it despised the sport got ran out of the industry and burned every bridge with the family that helped prop him up despite (laughs) being a millionaire and getting laid by hot young stewardesses and models he was cursed with petty jealousy and and Envy. He had sons, yet pretended they were his brothers. He owned glamorous apartment buildings in Manhattan, yet slept on a mattress on the floor. Despite building a ski lodge for the sole purpose of having fun for having, oh my gosh, here we go. Despite building a ski lodge for the sole purpose of having a fun place to hang out with cool people, he had no friends. He did, however, fall in love with an 18-year-old model named Melanie. They dated for five years and started their own modeling agency, but at the age of 23, Melanie left Howard Buddy Jacobson for the man who lived across the hall from them. This man was Jack, who did things like have friends, have fun, and be nice. The terrible part of this story is that Buddy got jealous, and with the help of some Sicilian dudes who were helping him build his next big-ass apartment building, they brutally murdered Jack. It's really violent and horrible. Our story ended last week with Buddy and a Sicilian friend of his, uh, with a name that sounds exactly like one of my cousins, getting easily arrested after burning a crate with Jack's body in it in broad daylight. At the time, buildings all over the Bronx were arsoned for a variety of reasons, and it sounds like Buddy had never been to the Bronx, heard you could go burn things there, and uh, legit chose to burn the body really in the only spot they could have possibly gotten caught. (laughs) Other important facts include Jack has a brother in the FBI, and after Jack was murdered in his apartment, the FBI cleaned it out completely within a matter of days, so that's a mystery. Muriel brutally mispronounced hashish in an attempt to leave us with a drug dealing subplot cliffhanger in what was an embarrassing admission of her own dorkiness. And ironically, during our recording, there was a fire in our neighborhood and we had to pause to go inspect it while we were surrounded by the young and fabulous types that reminded me of Melanie. Muriel, the floor is yours. <laughs> I'm going to have to say hashish like a thousand Just times. Just say hash. Okay, fine. I'll just say hash. Did you For even know that was I'm the same thing? I'm not talking about hash browns. Okay. Right. <laughs> <laughs> You're talking. First of all, no one's called no, hash browns I, hash. Yes. You, uh, corned beef and hash. All right. Oh, okay. All right. So, okay. I'll give you that one, Montgomery. <sighs> okay. So, right. 
Jack Tupper has been murdered. So and sad. Buddy Jacobson, along with his handyman, Salvatore uh, Pernito, have been arrested for his murder after witnesses described their car and license plate number to police. And actions. And actions. They were like, yeah, those guys in the yellow Cadillac, <laughs> yeah, they just burned that box. We were like, there's probably a body in there. There was. Right. And Everyone I, saw it. I don't think this is going to matter at all, but yeah. just so you know, different articles say Pernito is either Sicilian or Italian, so... Uh-huh. At the end, it turns out he might have been Italian and not Sicilian. And okay. You know, that breaks your little Sicilian heart. But I'm just letting <laughs> Why, you know. Why? You, you want me to want all of my relatives to be horrible? No, honey. I just think that you, you know, are into it. All yeah, right. I have so, a weird sense of self. I know. So, like I told you last episode, Jack Tupper's brother-in-law was an FBI agent stationed in Costa Rica. Mm -hmm. And after Jack Tupper's murder, FBI agents apparently were found cleaning out Tupper's apartment. So the only source I found that actually mentioned FBI involvement in the case at all Mm -hmm. was a 1978 article written by Anthony Hayden Guest for the New York Magazine. According to Hayden Guest, two days after Jack Tupper was murdered, his brother-in-law and a small group of FBI agents completely cleaned out Jack Tupper's apartment. Now, when Hayden Guest followed up with the FBI, they were really resistant to tell him anything. Mm -hmm. He asked about its involvement in the murder investigation, and he was simply told, quote, there is no involvement. They said, quote, It was a private matter and nothing to do with the case. Hmm. So, (laughs) what? Okay. Well, I don't know. It's just like, yeah, on private matters are, yeah, he has family in the FBI. So, wearing the full FBI gear, they went in there and just cleaned his apartment out. Right. Exactly. Two days after the murder. And who knows if all the forensics had been taken and all that kind of stuff, right? Yeah. The FBI just simply told Hayden Guest that police had given them the go-ahead to clear out the apartment. It's all on above board, but we're uh-huh. not going to talk about it anymore. Mm-hmm. And this doesn't really come up again, but, you know, it kind of sticks out as something that's weird, especially considering that over the next few years, Jack Tupper's name would be connected to a multi-million dollar drug bust. Mm. But we'll talk about that later. Okay. So as for the rest of the people involved... Buddy, who denied any involvement in the murder, was out on bail pending the trial. His alleged accomplice, 23-year-old undocumented Italian handyman, Salvatore Pernito, was also out on bail. And Melanie Kane was all over the tabloids. She couldn't book any modeling work. Mm. The modeling agency she co-owned with Buddy went belly up and she basically went into hiding. She eventually got an order of protection against Buddy when Mm. he made bail because he was still trying to constantly contact her. She had three 24-hour private investigators guarding her apartment and two... German shepherds from the police department in the apartment. Like she was just under lock and key. Damn, that's tight. I mean, that's not, that's horrifying, but it is pretty cool to just be like, you know, okay, these are our guard dogs. Right. Well, and it's crazy. Like nowadays, I don't think that would happen if you were like, hey man, I'm afraid. Go to the police and be like, I don't know if my scary person's going to respect my restraining order. And you're like, okay, we'll just take a couple of our dogs. (laughs) Yeah, right. It feels safer. All right, great. So, I'm going to obviously truncate a lot of like the grand jury hearings Mm -hmm. and the pre-trial and stuff like that because I know that you think it's really boring. Um, So I'm just going to give you the best hits. This is Nikki's version. Okay. 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 So we're going to, we'll reference the grand jury hearing, but we're really not going to talk about it too much. That's just basically where they figure out if there's enough evidence to indict someone for the murder. Yeah. Right. So, after the grand jury hearings, both Buddy Jacobson and Salvatore Pernita were indicted for the murder of Jack Tupper. Then we go to the pretrial hearings. They began in the fall of 1979. Mm-hmm. And Melanie was slated to be a star witness. 
By then, Melanie had managed to kind of pull her reputation out of the the gutter, right? And she signed with top New York City modeling agency, Wilhelmina Models, Mm -hmm. and started booking again. Notably, she landed a spread in Vogue magazine around this time. Oh, that's huge. Yeah, she kind of got back up there. Right. I mean, was it huge at the time? It's huge now. No, it's huge. Yeah, it's huge, yeah. Buddy sold his Upper East Side apartment where the murders happened. Mm -hmm. Uh, He sold the whole building and then he moved into a different East Side penthouse with his new girlfriend, Audrey Barrett. And if you thought she would be another teenage model, (laughs) you would be correct. (laughs) So everyone just, uh, man, that is, it's just so sad, you know? I mean, it's obviously just horrific because, I mean, being murdered, uh, it's just horrible, and then but everyone's like, Melanie's back to modeling, and and Buddy's, Buddy's just like got a new weird thing again. yeah child yeah. bride, and they <laughs> just keep keep it pushing. So Buddy was hemorrhaging money for lawyers, mm-hmm. and he did end up doing a little bit of creative bookkeeping to stay afloat. It's pretty complicated, but essentially he sold everything he owned mm-hmm. and then he bought uh, six other buildings in Mon- Manhattan mm-hmm. and then somehow like leveraged them against each other and got mortgaged up the butt to like he had a million mortgages. I don't know how any of this stuff works, uh, but essentially what? You just made the funniest hand motion when you said mortgaged up the butt. I don't know. Like super <laughs> tons of mortgages. Yeah, you're just fisting. <laughs> stop, stop, stop. You're the one doing it. I did not do that. I had a flat palm hand. <laughs> That's not better. Um, so he was not making a lot of money, mm-hmm. but he definitely still had a ton of property in Manhattan. So in October, during this pre-trial phase of the trial, the Bronx DA announced something a little bit wonky. All right. Okay. So, see, throughout the grand jury hearings earlier that year, Buddy Jacobson had insisted he was innocent. So, we didn't really go over the grand jury trial, but Mm -hmm. essentially, or the grand jury hearings, but Mm -hmm. essentially he was against the advice of his lawyers, really vocal, and he had this theory that he kept repeating over and over again. He said Jack Tupper had been murdered because he was wrapped up in narcotics trafficking, And that was the reason that he was innocent and Mm -hmm. he had nothing to do with what happened. And at the grand jury hearings, this was basically just dismissed by the prosecution at the time, but he just kind of repeatedly brought it up. Yeah. But in October of 1979, the wonky thing that the Bronx (laughs) DA revealed was that, in fact, Jack Tupper was suspected of dealing in narcotics. Mm. Back in April of 1979, almost a year after his death, Jack Tupper had been named as an unindicted co-conspirator in a multi-million dollar federal narcotics case, along with a man named Alan Seifert. Alan Seifert, a.k.a. Shaw, a.k.a. (laughs) the man who Melanie Kane called for help on the day of Jack Tupper's murder, Mm. The man who helped her go through Jack's apartment and eventually was with her when they broke down and called police. Mm -hmm. And if you remember back then, a lot of things were happening where you'd kind of expect someone to call the police a lot earlier. Right. And they were really resistant to call the police and didn't call the police until after Buddy had been apprehended. Right. Right. And after they went through the apartment. Right. And really knew something was wrong. Right. Right. But also maybe went through the apartment and took some things out of it or who knows. Who knows. But that's the guy. Right. Mm -hmm. He's also naturally another star witness for the prosecution. Mm -hmm. So, it made things a little hairy. It felt like a very slam dunk case, but yeah. then when all of those like records were unsealed and the DA announced it, yeah, it became a little more complicated. I have a question. What? The DA is going after Buddy. Yes. Why is he the one bringing forth this new information? That seems like that might hurt his case. Buddy? 
No, why is the DA bringing forward that information? You have to disclose like what you know. Oh, okay. Remember, we had we kind of talked about this a little bit. The pretrial hearings. Mm, are I about, remember nothing. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> like pretrial hearings are about kind of like disclosing what you know to the uh-huh. defense. Okay, right. So it's this exchange of information so you can prepare the case. Right. So like I think we did another episode pretty recently where it was before. That was the law. Yeah. Remember? Okay. Yeah. And so there's okay, all this evidence yeah. that didn't come to light. So right. the the defense didn't know how to defend against what the prosecution knew because they right. just didn't know what the prosecution right. knew. Right. So they weren't right. able to build a strong case. Yeah. So the pretrial part of the hearing, everybody's kind of saying all the stuff that they know. Got it. And let's just briefly go over the narcotics case, just so you know the details. Great. So shortly after Jack Tupper's murder. Alan Seifert, a.k.a. Shaw, had been arrested along with 15 other men for their alleged role in this nine-year-old narcotics ring headed by New Jersey crime boss, a guy named Simone D. Calvacante. Mm -hmm. The group was accused of importing about $3 million worth of drugs a year from South America for like the the whole decade since 1970. And I believe Seifert, a.k.a. Shaw, was granted immunity for the federal narcotics case in exchange for his testimony at Buddy's trial. Oh, well. Now, I read that in a book called The Right Blood by Mm. Carol Case. I haven't seen that anywhere else, but that kind of makes sense to me because I couldn't find uh Seifert aka Shaw I couldn't find his convictions anywhere the part that doesn't make sense is basically they're like okay well you're a witness in a thing where you you know are just like literally an innocent witness who kind of knew the people involved and therefore if you testify in that case we're gonna get rid of all of your like incredibly serious drug trafficking I know that's it's the same to me but that's just you know, in this particular book, she's yeah. the one who she's a little footnote. Uh-huh. <laughs> she did the she's, research. I can't access it. Yeah. But, uh, so okay. I didn't, I didn't hear that anywhere else, but I also couldn't find any record of any of his convictions or mm-hmm. his life after the trial. Okay. And you know, this is pure speculation, mm-hmm. but you don't really know how many things, uh, Seifert was willing to talk about. Right. right. So okay. we're starting mm-hmm. with the trial, but we don't know. He kind of disappears off the planet after mm-hmm. this, and right. he knows a lot of stuff. Right. So people who are willing to talk sometimes are, you know. When it rains, it pours. Right. So we don't know. But anyway, he just disappeared after this trial. Wow, Muriel, I hear calling him a rat. I don't know. <laughs> okay. There's going to be other rats in this story, mm-hmm. so I just want to maybe he's a little bit of a taste. Yeah, this is Nim, you know what I mean? <laughs> oh <my God laughs> Lots of rats. Everyone get that? Stop Did that everyone get it? Okay. get it? Okay. <laughs> Now, still during the pretrial hearings, mm-hmm. right, that are happening in the fall of 1979, in November of 1979, about a month after all of this information about the drug stuff came mm-hmm. out about Tuppert and Seifert, mm-hmm. the chief prosecutor of this murder trial, his sister was found brutally murdered. Oh, no. Mary what? Kelly Schwartz was found stabbed and strangled in a dry creek bed in Brooklyn. Damn. And that's not all. A week later, the chief prosecutor's other sister, who had an unlisted phone number, got a phone call from a man who just simply said, you're next, and hung up the phone. Damn. So after his sister's murder and threats to his family, the chief prosecutor actually completely removed himself from the trial. He just yeah. got off the case. Because he probably feels like maybe someone he put away or something from his past is trying to get back at him or something. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Like nobody really knows what happened. Yeah. Like why? But also, you know, they're digging up a lot of things about murder and drugs and who are we blaming about this and how are these things connected right damn i didn't even know they had dry creeks in brooklyn (laughs) Uh, (sighs) always picking up on the most important parts (laughs) 
And this was all just two months before the trial was scheduled to begin. So it was yeah. a big deal for him to pull out. And they got a fresh new prosecutor to come in and was the assistant DA was the yeah. one who actually tried the case. That is horrific. Is that one of the things that you said? I heard you muttering under your breath like, man, this story just keeps getting crazier. No, well, kind of. Actually, mm-hmm. there was a crime short that I read that I was able to pull a lot of information from. Mm-hmm. And they mentioned that the DA left after his sister had died. Yeah. But nobody said she'd been murdered and his other sister was being threatened with murder. Whoa. That's so different. You yeah. Know? They were just like, oh, yeah, he felt bad. Uh-huh. And so he had to leave to mourn his sister, which I was like, that's so odd because that, I mean, I'm sure that's true, but also that seems, you know. So you're of- the one bringing in the, that bit of uh, tableau to the story. Well, it it comes up other other places. Uh, you just have to be like, why did that guy leave? And then you yeah. Google that guy's name. You're like, damn, that's crazy. Yeah, so anyway, crazy. Mary mm-hmm. Kelly Schwartz's murder was never connected to Buddy Jacobson. Mm-hmm. It also remains unsolved. Damn, that's so drastic. So with a new chief prosecutor in place, Buddy Jacobson and Salvatore Pernito went to trial for the murder of Jack Tupper on January 30th, 1990. Mm-hmm. The trial would be the longest and most expensive trial in the history of the Bronx up until that point. Yeah. Clocking in at $1.5 million. And it's happening in the Bronx, not Manhattan. Yeah, because the, I think the body was found in the Bronx. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but, and the arrest happened there. Yeah. Or I guess it happened on the bridge. Anyways, gotcha. I don't really understand. Sure. But it's all New York, baby. Okay. <laughs> so here is the Nick quick and dirty version of the trial great okay thank you you. and this is kind of it'll give you the gist like i said it's actually kind of interesting some points of this story are just like directly conflicting in lots of different news articles Mm -hmm. so i i kind of chose the ones that seemed like they came up like the one that was the most often repeated uh-huh. and made the most sense. <laughs> okay, you're going with that as the story you're right. telling. Right, some of these like long-form articles that I read were like, yeah. they have different, slightly different dates. It's not any big deal. Anyway, I got you. Okay. So we're going to go. This is the quick and dirty, broad strokes version of the trial. Great. So, the prosecution. The prosecution stuck to the love triangle story. So this is the theory, right? With the help of Salvatore Pernito, Buddy killed Jack Tupper in a jealous rage Mm -hmm. and attempted to burn his body in an abandoned lot in the Bronx in the middle of the day. Right. And the prosecution had plenty of circumstantial evidence, right? Obviously, first off, multiple witnesses saw the two men drag the crate out of a Cadillac, pour accelerant on the crate, light it on fire, and drive away. Buddy himself wasn't specifically fingered by any witness. They weren't Mm -hmm. like, that's the guy. Yeah. But... They saw the Cadillac and then minutes later pulled Buddy out of that Cadillac on the bridge. Right. And it sounds like witnesses did say there were two white dudes and one Uh, of them had a mustache. Yeah. You know, but nobody got a good look at them. Mm Mm-hmm. But like you said, they were able to record the make, model, color of the car, Mm -hmm. the license plate number of the car, which led police to finding Buddy and Pernito just 20 minutes from the crime scene, stuck in traffic. Mm -hmm. Other thing that happened is police smelled accelerant on the men when they were arrested. When they pulled them out of the car, they were like, whoa, it smells like gasoline or some sort of fuel. Yeah. Among... Other things also, there were blood-stained pants found in Buddy's penthouse. There were bullets uh, found in Buddy's penthouse that matched bullets found in Jack Tupper's body. I mean, that's <laughs> pretty intense evidence. Right, and there was blood found in both Buddy and Tupper's penthouses. Mm-hmm. The defense's position was this. Jack Tupper had been murdered because he was in deep with narcotics dealers and that Buddy had simply disposed of the body when Melanie discovered it and came to him begging for help. Oh, whoa. So again, this is the quick and dirty version. Mm -hmm. So remember, right, in April 1979, Jack Tupper was named as an indicted co-conspirator in a federal narcotics case along with one of the star witnesses in his murder trial. And... Just to add this, it also looks like Tupper knew multiple people involved in that narcotics case. Melanie Kane testified at trial that five of the men 
named in that federal narcotics indictment mm-hmm. were longtime friends of Tupper's. Mm-hmm. So he knew a lot of people out of the 15. Even though she had only known him a couple of weeks by the time he got murdered. Right, right. But she was like, I know all of his old friends. Right. Yeah. Well, because on their, their first date, he like flew her to Costa Rica to meet her, his family. Hey, man, they don't have iPhones. They just yeah. are always like, hey, you want to go hang out? <laughs> oh, my God. All right. Melanie Kane testified for nine days straight and she was really convincing she stuck to her version of events she was Mm -hmm. kind of consistent throughout you know buddy was threatening her he had tried to bribe jack tupper to quote unquote return his wife uh on the morning of jack tupper's murder she saw salvatore pranito outside of her apartment lurking in the hallway Mm -hmm. she saw buddy's trash department with her own eyes she saw you know, all the dealings with the rug and the paint and then right. cutting the rug, you know, like re- removing the rug. Yeah. All looking like they were trying to conceal blood stains. I believe at trial too. I didn't see this earlier, but yeah. she she said that she saw the mat, the rug pad underneath the rug look like it had blood stains mm-hmm, on it. Mm-hmm. But on cross-examination, Melanie Kane also admitted to a few other things like... Mm-hmm. Once she saw Jack Tupper count out $30,000 in cash and deliver it to a man in Queens. So like (laughs) maybe a drug dealer, right? So there's like little things Uh they were kind of seeding in there. Up until this point, Jack Tupper had been painted by his family as this like devoted father and this really sweet sort of guy with a rescue complex uh-huh. really nice guy mm-hmm. and so some of these things that came into light were a little contradictory of how he but he's also it. owning bars and all that kind of stuff and sometimes you got to deliver thirty thousand to a guy in queens that's true but as i read his story i did have this feeling of like how is this guy making his money mm-hmm. because he was looking for a bar and he mm. had sold a bar. Right. But at that point, he had only been a restaurant manager. Mm-hmm. So it was definitely like, this guy's getting a lot. And he's not, he doesn't come from a super rich family. And he's living in a penthouse in the Upper East Side of Manhattan. Right. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I mean, I got that feeling like I kept being like, why doesn't anybody just say what his job is? Uh-huh. And I was <laughs> yeah. like, oh, okay, well, maybe something else. Uh-huh. But the cornerstone of the defense's theory was a man named Joseph Marguerite. Ooh. A fourth person who may be involved making the love triangle a foursome. <laughs> More like a love square, you might say. <laughs> or a rectangle. I should have said that. Making the love triangle a love square. <laughs> uh, so in that hot mess of penthouses on the seventh floor of mm-hmm. Buddy's Eastside apartment building, there lived right Buddy, Melanie Kane, who bounced between you know, apartments, apparently Mm -hmm. Jack Tupper, as well as another friendly neighbor, a man named Joseph Marguerite and Marguerite disappeared without a trace. The day Jack Tupper was killed. What? Are you serious? (laughs) Yes. God damn it. So based on that, Uh this is kind of a more detailed uh, defense theory. This is what they put forward. And I think they also put this together based on what Buddy Jacobson had to say about everything. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of this has to do with Buddy Jacobson's perspective. Sure. Well, that's their job, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So the idea was Melanie Kane was having sex with Joseph Marguerite. So she was with Tupper, Mm -hmm. but also sleeping with Joseph Marguerite, who the defense alleged was probably a drug dealer. Okay. (laughs) Jack Tupper and Marguerite then got into a fight over Melanie and also a bunch of cocaine and money. Mm -hmm. Marguerite then shot Jack Tupper and a few bullets accidentally went through his wall and into Buddy's apartment. So that's why they were bullets in Buddy's apartment. Okay. Was there bullet holes they could point to? I don't know. That's that didn't come up in anything I read, but they said that's that's probably how it happened. Mm The defense said then the fight spilled out into the hallway, getting blood on the carpet and ended in Jack's apartment, right? Jack Tepper's apartment. Mm -hmm. Afterwards, the defense says Melanie and Marguerite planted Jack Tepper's body in Buddy's apartment to frame him. And the transfer of the body is a thing that got the blood all over Buddy's apartment, Hmm. which was 
definitely had a lot of blood in it. Then Melanie convinced love-struck Buddy to help her get rid of the body Mm -hmm. altogether, hatching the plan with him to burn it in the Bronx. Now, according to the defense, Melanie Kane, a.k.a. the woman of a thousand faces, then flipped. (laughs) Who called her that? The defense. Okay. Then flipped and framed Buddy for revenge, right? Mm -hmm. Because it did come up at trial, you know, when she said, oh, I'm his mistress. I was his mistress for five years. She doesn't use the word girlfriend Mm -hmm, because mm -hmm. he would cheat on her all the time, right? And so... They were like, remember when she said that? She was jealous. She Mm -hmm. was mad about that. And then the other thing that happened was basically Jack Tupper's habit was to record all of his phone calls. And that's just what he did. Apparently, that's what they say he did, right? Mm -hmm. But he did end up recording two significant phone calls with Buddy, right? And one of them was actually between Melanie and Buddy. And it was about money. Mm-hmm. And what it all comes down to is that Melanie thought this whole time they were kind of co-owners of My Fair Lady, the modeling agency. Yeah. But really, nothing was in her name. Mm-hmm. No paperwork. She had nothing. Like, it was all in Buddy's name. Right. And also, he had been taking all of the earnings and kind of giving her an allowance. Mm-hmm. So by the time she moved in with Jack Tupper, she was kind of broke mm-hmm. and realizing that Buddy could just, she was owed all of this money, right? Mm-hmm. She was the only one bringing it in, but there was no contract or anything that would have got, allowed her to get that money back. right? And so what Melanie says is they recorded the conversation so they could kind of get him to admit that he had taken this money from her. What the defense says is, is they recorded that conversation as a possible attempt at extortion. Mm-hmm. So the defense says, after all this shit went down and they got Buddy to burn the body, then Melanie flipped and figured, I'm just going to screw him over for screwing me over. Well, unless they just have no physical evidence to strengthen that case, that sounds like a pretty decent argument. I mean, the thing you're missing is like witnesses and like the defense mm-hmm. has two witnesses that are consistent with like, I went to go sign this lease. I came back, you know, mm-hmm. I went up and down. I called these people from this phone, this like a phone booth, yeah. you know, I saw a buddy in the lobby at this time. Like that kind of stuff is kind of hard to make up, mm-hmm. but the defense didn't have any witnesses saying the opposite. Right. You know, they didn't really have anybody except for. Buddy Jacobson. What about Salvatore? Are we going to get to him? Not really. Oh, no. <laughs> What's he saying? Is he maintaining his innocence? He's not a witness. No one's bringing him up. He's pleading I didn't the hear fifth. About him. Oh, they just leave him out? Well, oh, it's man. not. He's, you know, he's. Anyway, we'll talk about it. Right okay. His, he does have a story. It just mm-hmm. doesn't have to do with like what he says happened. Okay. So basically the prosecution just, again, straight up rejected the defense's position as just a pure fabrication. Mm-hmm. And at least reading it, I could understand why you have something that seems very simple, you know, mm-hmm. uh, uh, love triangle that went south, somebody who killed out of jealousy, which yeah. does happen. The other thing of like, then there's this other guy and they did that and all this stuff accidentally got into my room and there's no witnesses to that. Right. I mean, that seems insane. I mean, if they had bullet holes going in the wall, you know, we didn't talk a lot. I couldn't find a lot about the forensics of the case, but I mean, it did seem like, oops, (laughs) the bullets and the blood are in my apartment. And then I didn't know what to do. So I burned a body. I didn't call the police and they couldn't my ex girlfriend. Right. You know, I mean, it's, uh, to me, it seemed kind of dumb, but like I, like you're saying, I mean, whatever we 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 don't know. We don't know. And happened. nothing of Marguerite ever came. He never showed up, or we never heard from him again. Well, uh huh. Even though they had completely rejected the defense's theory, yeah, there was a race to find Joseph Marguerite. He's the guy <laughs> who can say what's up, and he did live in that apartment. He's a guy who exists. Yeah. Now, Marguerite couldn't be found before the conclusion of the trial, but about two years later, in August of 1982, he was arrested in South Carolina on drug charges. Mm -hmm. Now, apparently, 
a little less than a year after Jack Teppard was murdered, Joseph Marguerite and 25 of his buddies tried to sm- smuggle, this is a different thing, uh-huh. tried to smuggle 21 tons of hashish into the U.S. Uh, with a street value over about 45 million. Jesus. And that's about 157 million in today's money. So God a damn. Lot, a lot of hashish. Right. Also, I just want to say something real quick. That was sick. Sometimes this will happen. We'll all ask about something, and then that'll just be randomly where you're going with the story next. We don't plan that, people. <laughs> we don't like say pause and be like, "Okay, well, hey Nick, make funny. sure you ask me about Marguerite," and then I'll just like go into it. I knew. I try to do stuff. I think you might find that's kind of interesting. That's a lot of hash, man. Right. So they got caught because the freighter carrying the concentrated weed blocks Mm -hmm. was seized by the Coast Guard in New Jersey on March 17th, 1979. And that is the federal investigation that led to Marguerite's capture three years later. Now, when Marguerite was captured, he turned state's witness, Mm -hmm. which aided the feds in arresting more of Marguerite's drug buddies. (laughs) And there were a lot of them. So according to an Ashbury Park Press article from April 1st, 1983, in October of 1981, a fishing boat named Falcon sunk off the coast of New Jersey along with the $36 million worth of hashish it was carrying. So a different carload, different boatload <laughs> of hashish, right? So this one, this one yeah. sank. The uh-huh. other one was seized by... The Coast Guard, this one sank to the bottom the of the Falcon ocean. Falcon drowned. And there were all of these people trying to get it back. They had tried to hire these divers. Hell yeah. It was this big thing, right? Yeah. That'd make an awesome movie. But in regards to that, uh, Marguerite was named by the people involved in that whole fiasco as being a suspected informant. Mm. So he had been working with them, and that was the person that, you know, when the feds were kind of tapping into these conversations. His name kept coming up as being a rat. People mm-hmm. were worried he was a rat, right? So his name was kind of connected to that. Yeah. Then, according to a 1983 United Press International article, Marguerite ratted on New Jersey businessman Tracy Wong, who had run a drug smuggling ring with the help of a Nigerian diplomat that netted millions of dollars. So from 1977 to 1979, Wong financed the purchases of cocaine, marijuana, and other types of drugs from Thailand and Colombia. Uh And what would happen was Marguerite, he would finance it, then Marguerite would make the purchases and then he would pass them along to Wong, who would then give the drugs to a Nigerian diplomat who then took them through customs and into the U.S. Damn. So he ratted yeah. all those guys out, Fuck. right? Marguerite also helped the feds prosecute the crew responsible for the infamous pot plane crash in Charleston, West Virginia. Okay, I want to know about this. So... These dudes crashed a cargo plane loaded up with 12 tons of marijuana in a rural airport in West Virginia on June 6th, 1979. Uh And that ended up being its own fiasco because the police at one point tried to burn it and then everybody got high. (laughs) They didn't know what to do with it. It was like too much to bring to the evidence room. Uh, And then plus all these people. You have have an evidence building. All these people came out of like the West Virginia woods or the neighborhoods and tried to snatch up some weed. Weed. Fuck yeah. And the hillside got seeded with this fat marijuana growth. So like, <laughs> then they tried to pour gasoline to kill the plants. It was like this whole oh, thing where man. it got way out of control. Nothing ever good that comes from something that starts with a plane crash. Yeah. How'd they crash the cargo plane? It was too heavy. They landed it and they couldn't stop at the end of the runway. Oh. So it was overloaded and they couldn't break. They ran off the edge of the runway and crashed on the oh side of this mountain. God. And I don't think anybody died well that makes me feel better about laughing about it all right according to west virginia public broadcasting also i just have to add this one of the men marguerite helped convict was documentary filmmaker leon gast all right who after serving his prison sentence went on to win an academy award in 1997 for his film when we were kings oh wow about the famous 1974 rumble in the jungle heavyweight championship between muhammad ali and george foreman where's the documentary about that guy's life that guy 
straight up was waiting at like at that little airport with a U-Haul van <laughs> yeah. to take all this weed and then they crashed the car and he got arrested. Uh, or they crashed the plane. Yeah, right. Uh, so anyway, I thought that was pretty crazy. Hell yeah. Right? Yeah. So Marguerite turned state witness and ratted out like major drug busts around the country. Yeah. Big, big, big drug busts. Starting, he, his involvement, I think, went back to the 70s, but I mean, early 70s, mm-hmm. but starting in 1979, he just ratted out everyone god damn no wonder he disappeared yeah right Right. he's like oh shit jack got killed i gotta go so given all that information conspiracy-minded folks such as buddy jacobson Mm -hmm. like to point out that maybe the reason that no one could find marguerite for buddy's 1980 trial was because the federal government was working on these huge drug bust mm. cases and they needed Marguerite. Yeah. So maybe that maintaining the integrity of the narcotics investigations was more important than disclosing Marguerite's location just so he could be summoned to testify at Buddy's trial. So <sighs> that could have possibly cleared Buddy of Jack Tepper's murder. Yeah. And that's something that has been thrown around specifically by Buddy often. Sure. You know, but he's like, you couldn't find him and then you could find him when he was a rat. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. I mean, I don't know. Is that a conspiracy theory? That just seems like. I mean, it's like I. I don't know. It's so hard. To, I don't even know what it counts as a conspiracy theory. Anymore. Yeah, right. I feel like lots of. I feel suspicious about everything. Yeah, right. I would say that it does really seem like Buddy uh, to me is the murderer, but <laughs> yeah. I mean, I feel like it, the idea. What is it? Occam's Razor. The, I don't know. I don't know. Actually, I don't know Occam's what that razor? is. What were you going for? The simplest idea is usually the truth. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, right. Like, you'd have to do a lot of backbending to make that what Buddy's theory would be to be true. But yeah. it is kind of, there are lots of interesting things about it. Yeah. According to a 1983 article by Mary Poust for the Herald Statesman, in December of 1983, Joseph Marguerite actually ended his ratting bloodbath by testifying about what he knew about Jack Tupper's murder. Mm. What he said was he provided the guns to kill Jack Tupper and then he disposed of the guns that killed Jack Tupper. And he said he gave both guns to Buddy Jacobson. Mm -hmm. And then Joseph Marguerite entered the witness protection program and disappeared yet again. (laughs) He bounced. He's he's gone. Yeah, so they eventually Uh did get him to talk. I mean, it was after the trial had concluded, Mm. but that was the information that they gave was, you know, he's like, yeah, I ran away because I gave him the guns. Yeah. And then I disposed of the guns, but I didn't do any shooting. But did he know that Buddy had used them to kill Jack? Who knows? I don't Hmm. know. He didn't say. He just said that. Yeah. (laughs) Ultimately, at the conclusion of the trial, the defense's position was just a little too far-fetched for the jury. They did convict Buddy. However, Salvatore Pernito was acquitted on April 9th, 1980, and deported back to Italy. Mm -hmm. Now, a little bit later, maybe about a little over six months, on January 9th, 1981, Prunito was arrested by Italian police outside of Florence with a briefcase containing three kilos of heroin. <laughs> That's about eight to nine million dollars worth if sold in Manhattan in the 1980s. So oh quite God. a bit of heroin. Oh, Jesus. And the Italian police arrested Prunito based on a tip that they got from the New York DEA. Mm-hmm. So even though Pernito was acquitted in the murder of Jack Tupper, obviously police thought he was out there being a baddie somewhere, right? <laughs> yeah. So somebody was watching him in Italy do his thing. Yeah. You know, so it's, it's really interesting to me because you have all these people and they live in this apartment building or they work in this apartment building and they have all these relationships and those things all make sense. But then they all are just connected to drugs. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, yeah, it's yeah. kind of wild. I don't know what Pernito selling heroin has anything to do with Marguerite or anything else, but that's a lot of heroin. Well, and are we believing the story that the reason 
Salvatore knew Buddy was because he was working at the construction site that Buddy he was. He was working at the construction uh-huh. site. I mean, a lot of guys did. Yeah. You know, it was like he was a crew that was recognized as mm-hmm. being part of the crew of the construction site. Yeah. And he used to do stuff around Buddy's house. Yeah. So, like, for instance, Melanie Kane knew him by sight. Yeah. Also, sorry, didn't Melanie say... Maybe I just misremember this from the story last week, but didn't she notice like a bunch of people in Buddy's apartment? Or yeah, was, yeah. There was a lot but of people. But what she's in there. saying is uh-huh. when she left to go sign the lease uh-huh. in the morning, yeah. If we all remember, she was sleeping with Jack Tepper, yeah. and then she woke up in the morning before he woke up. This is what she says she did. Yeah. And she left to go sign a lease on a different apartment. Yeah. And she says as she was walking out of the building in the morning before anything was amiss. Mm-hmm. Pernita was in the hallway. And then later, there was more people in Buddy's apartment. Yeah. Whatever happened to those people? Was that, did anyone get brought I don't know. Why in? does that even matter? Because were they witnesses, you know? I'm sure. I'm okay. not, you, you're the one who told me you don't want me to go over all the crime. <laughs> I mean, like, you want the bullet points of the crime or not? You want me to go over all the forensics? I can Muriel, do that. this is my cake. Every time I do that, you this complain is my cake. so much. This is my cake. It's mine. I own it, and I'm going to eat it, too. No, quit okay? asking me questions you told me not to answer. <laughs> Tell you, not you, did. To that. you said it was boring <laughs> so i stopped doing it i'm just telling you like the basic position of the defense uh-huh. the basic position of the prosecution great and the verdict great and <laughs> if now you asked me where the bullets came from and what direction <laughs> i could do that for you but you'd just be bored everybody's bored <laughs> jesus christ yeah, but then I get to ask you the questions and you get to have this What happened reaction? to the guys? Were they witnesses? <laughs> you tell them all. Can I hear all 25 of their testimonies? It's like, oh my God. Uh, but it's all for the greater good because we get this reaction out of you and that's what the people really are <sighs> paying for. You know? I'm going to tell you they hit the bricks. Okay. <laughs> hit the bricks. All right. <laughs> okay. On Saturday, April 12th, 1980, after 11 weeks of trial, Buddy was convicted of second degree murder. His sentencing hearing was scheduled for June 3rd, 1980, with the possibility of 25 years to life as the Mm -hmm. maximum sentence. Mm -hmm. Six weeks later, Buddy escaped from the Brooklyn House of Corrections in broad daylight. I forgot you said he escaped. Brooklyn House of Corrections, that seems like like maybe a chill sort of like uh, club or something. That was like a straight up jail. It was supposed to be really like, you can't escape from this place. Yeah. That was the reputation. So it was a huge embarrassment. Oh. Okay. So remember when Buddy owned that Sex Palace ski lodge? Yes. In episode one? Yes. Well, you asked me what happened to it, right? Mm-hmm. He ended up selling it to a dude named Tony DeRosa. Now, Tony ran it into the ground. Right. Mm-hmm. And by the time he ran into the ground, he still owed Buddy $300,000 on the property. Now, Buddy went to him and forgave the debt. But he told DeRosa that when the time came, Buddy would come to him for a favor. Oh, well, he's playing the both mafia. Both men game. had probably seen The Godfather. <laughs> that came out in 1972. <laughs> sure. So they had both seen The Godfather yeah. a couple times at this point. They yeah. knew the deal. Yeah. And. You know, they both thought, I saw the movie, I need this money, I need a favor. This is a solid arrangement, right? Okay, sure. So Jerosa then left Vermont, you know, dejected, moved to Manhattan, his sex pals didn't work out, and he became a bartender. Mm-hmm. A few weeks after his conviction, Buddy contacted DeRosa. The time had come to collect. He needed DeRosa to bust him out of jail. God, that's a big ask for $300,000? It's a lot of money back then. So Buddy had his 21-year-old girlfriend, Audrey Barrett, steal some stationery from his real estate lawyer, Michael Schwartz. Now, what DeRosa did is he used the stationery to pretend he was a lawyer visiting Buddy in jail. That's mm-hmm. how he made the request to visit Buddy. Yeah. And DeRosa came several times throughout May, and the two men would sit there practicing signing Schwartz's signature. Buddy also took this time to gradually shave off like half of his mustache leaving just a little bit on the side okay on may 31st <laughs> just so no one would notice 
On May 31st, uh-huh. DeRosa entered the jail in a gray suit with an identical gray suit hidden underneath. He signed himself in his Schwartz and headed over to Buddy's cell on the 10th floor. So God he was damn. way up there. Okay, I see the scheme. He gave the extra suit to Buddy and then Buddy walked out of the jail. He stayed, DeRosa stayed in the cell. Mm-hmm. Buddy walked out of his jail, signing himself out as Schwartz and using a little bag to cover the remaining part of his mustache. <laughs> Uh, I just love the idea of casually, slowly, but surely shaving your mustache so no one notices that on day to day. But then when you're out running around, someone describes your mustache, everyone back in the jail is like, no, it doesn't look like that. It's long. Yeah, but it's not. Uh, he had half of a mustache. What I like to think of is every time the guards came by, he turned his head so it looked like he had a mustache. <laughs> and then when he left, yeah. he, had, he just covered that part <laughs> so he looked clean shaven. Uh, That's so, <laughs> so Jacobson made it out to meet Audrey Barrett, Anderson, David, who are waiting for him. Mm-hmm. So there was a big series of like he stayed in a safe house for a second. Mm-hmm. They loaded him into the trunk of a rental car. They drove two cars next to each other to try to avoid being like tracked. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he like rode in the back in the trunk of this car for a long time. He had a wig and a baseball cap that he wore everywhere. Where was any of these tactics when they were burning the body in broad daylight? <laughs> they learned their lesson. Come on, man. Jesus. They're evolving. You evolve. We evolve. We all evolve. <laughs> okay. Right. So, Eventually, they dropped David off, and then Audrey and Buddy headed west. They decided to go to Iowa first, where Buddy had some racing friends. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, Tony DeRosa was immediately arrested in Buddy's cell. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. when uh, the pair got to Des Moines, Iowa, they traded out their car and got ideas from for aliases from tombstones in a local cemetery, and they became... Lonnie Sherman, Rumbach, and Rhonda Sue Gessford. And that's the names they used throughout their journey. That's, I like that. That's, that's a pretty good idea. On June 3rd, 1980, Buddy was sentenced in abstentia to the maximum sentence, 25 years to life. But mm-hmm. he was long gone. He's out there mm-hmm. in a car somewhere. Mm-hmm. On June 4th, a grand jury indicted him for charges related to jailbreak, adding potentially seven more years on his sentence if they could ever find his squirrely ass. <laughs> so there was a worldwide red alert for Buddy. Everybody was trying to find him. They issued like Interpol, everything you could do to find Buddy. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, Tony DeRosa was totally effed. His <laughs> bail was set for $500,000. He was charged with criminal facilitation, hindering prosecution, criminal impersonation, burglary in the third degree and criminal possession of a forged instrument. See, this is what I'm talking about. 300,000 is not worth all that. He was placed in Buddy's cell after his arraignment. Uh, They're like, oh yeah, you want to pretend to be him? There you go. (laughs) And Buddy's escape was so like dumb Uh that everyone who let him out got in really big trouble. (laughs) The warden and the deputy warden were both fired from the Brooklyn House of Corrections. And then there were disciplinary charges levied against a captain and five other officers. Basically, they were like, how did you do this? Sure, hell yeah. Uh. So the couple is on this insane cross-country journey, right? But Mm -hmm. as we said before, you know, Buddy didn't have a lot of money, like cash. Mm-hmm. It was all tied up in properties. Yeah. And so they couldn't afford, they were afraid to stay in places, you know, and, and be recognized. Mm-hmm. But they also couldn't really afford that. So they spent the whole time camping outside and sleeping in their cars. Yeah. But on June 29th, Audrey got tired of sleeping in a car with Buddy in his full ass disguise. Mm-hmm. And she turned herself in from Thousand Oaks, California. Mm-hmm. So, oh, they uh, made it all the way to California, though. Yeah. Wow. So, Audrey des- was described as like this 
Bible reading college student and part-time model. And she had been sleeping with Buddy in his car for the past few weeks on their 3,000 mile cross-country journey. Mm -hmm. And she just had enough. She was like, this is not what I signed up for. Mm -hmm. This guy was supposed to be a millionaire. I'm like sleeping in a car for weeks. I don't (laughs) want to. He's got half a mustache. This is just, he's already, he's weirder than I thought he was. I thought he was younger. He's definitely not. Right. What happened was Buddy left her in the car and he went in to run some errands while they were sitting in Eureka, California. Mm-hmm. And then when he came, when he was inside, Audrey just bounced and she hitchhiked over to her brother's house. Yeah. So in Thousand Oaks, she met up with her lawyer and arranged to surrender peacefully. Now, up until then, actually, police had absolutely no idea where this eccentric millionaire had gone. Yeah. And now they know at least he's in California. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Audrey was charged with first degree escape, criminal facilitation, forgery, and possession of legal stationery. Mm. Her bail was set for $350,000. And if convicted, she would spend up to 11 years in prison. Those charges were eventually dropped in exchange for her testimony mm-hmm. against Buddy right. rega- regarding the jailbreak. Sure. So when Buddy sees Audrey is gone, he freaks, right? Mm-hmm. He's trying to, he tries to track her down. He drives out to the brother's house in Thousand Oaks. No way, dude. Just go to Mexico. Just but go. He just snaps. Yeah. And he's too late, right? Buddy's ultimate goal was to land in Ireland. They were just going to kind of fake people out, but he just couldn't get the cash that he needed to get to Ireland. Mm -hmm. So he, you know, had his wig and his hat on. He drove over to Manhattan Beach for a (laughs) pre-scheduled phone call with his son David and had some fried zucchini at the Criterion restaurant. But unfortunately for Buddy... Based on Audrey's statements, police had already gotten to David. They threatened him with the exact same charges Audrey was facing. Yeah. And David caved. Yeah. So when his haggard dad called him from the restaurant payphone in Manhattan Beach, just across the street from a random police station, David kept his dad on the line long enough for police to trace the call and track him down. Oh, no. Yeah. After a 45-minute phone call with his son, Buddy was captured on July 11th, 1980. While awaiting extradition from California, he told officers his escape was simply to find more evidence to vindicate himself. He was on the hunt for the drug traffickers who framed him. Mm-hmm. On July 15th, 1980, Buddy was sentenced to his 25 years, plus formally charged with all the escape stuff, adding seven more years to his sentence. <sighs> I mean, he really is a Shakespearean character. He's just his own worst enemy. You well, know, that, he's yeah. other people's horrible enemy too. I mean, R.I.P. Jack. This, I know you so, have a lot of sympathy for this. I'm guy. just saying, it's just like this guy was given the world on a silver platter, and he just was miserable every step of the way and ruined lives. And it was like, dude, just race horses and be rich. <laughs> okay, so the next year in May 1981. Buddy was serving his time at the maximum security prison, the Clinton Correctional Facility in New York, Mm -hmm. when guards caught him trying to dig out a tunnel. (laughs) He ended up not getting into trouble for that. (laughs) Some like random reason, like they weren't, he he was supposed to get witnesses and he wasn't allowed to get the witnesses, but um, he did try to dig a tunnel. In 1984, he was transferred to Attica Correctional Facility. That's like the big scary one. Yeah. By 1988, Buddy had bone cancer. Mm. A little less than a year before his death in 1989, he did an interview with Bill Christine from the Los Angeles Times. He maintained his innocence still. And even though he was adamant that the story Melanie told in court wasn't true, and he constantly insisted he had been framed for murder uh, by drug lords, he didn't really have any hard feelings against Melanie and Mm -hmm. he didn't blame her. He told Christine, quote, I don't think Melanie lied in court. She was too dumb to lie. Oh, she was sick. She had hyperglycemia an abnormally high concentration of sugar in the blood. She would fall asleep just sitting, having lunch with you. And she did it every day. 
One day at a sidewalk cafe, I poured cold water down her neck and she still didn't wake up. People used to think she had overdosed on drugs. Then she'd wake up and ask about a modeling appointment or something that she thought happened yesterday when it was really a couple weeks before. I think that's what happened to her on the stand. But it's like for nine days, bro. Like, really? <laughs> she was having an episode for nine days? <laughs> yeah, right. That also <laughs> happened to be completely in line with everything she'd been saying up until that point. Yeah, I mean, whatever. But like, that's... You know, when he starts saying things like that, yeah. then that makes me think that he's totally full of shit. Sure. Right? Yeah. But that was that was his thing. He's like, Melanie is not a bad kid. She's just too stupid to lie. <laughs> that's such a... Uh, yeah. this, is a <laughs> this is such a weird thing to do. Be like, no, I still love her. I don't have any hard feelings over his son, about her. Uh, his son, David, ended up losing all of the Manhattan properties, mm. right? Because Buddy never had a a lot of cash liquidity yeah. and David just couldn't keep up with the mortgage payments. Yeah. Uh, at the end, but he had no money and no lawyer to file appeals. His mother lived near enough to visit, but buddy didn't tell her about the cancer and he refused to let her come. He refused to see her. Hmm. At the time of the Los Angeles times interview, buddy had gained about 40 pounds from his cancer treatment. A week after the interview, one of the vertebrae in his neck collapsed, which is essentially equivalent to having to walk around with a broken neck just yeah. because of the bone cancer. And he was fighting with prison officials from Attica about where he was being sent for treatment, at one point telling his sister that Attica just wanted to send him to a county hospital to die. Mm. On May 16th, 1989 at 4 a.m., Buddy died of bone cancer at the Erie County Medical Center in Buffalo a month after starting treatment there. He was 58 years old. Man, R.I.P. Jack. That is so messed up, too. We didn't really talk about it this episode, but last episode, you really painted the picture that like he was shot and stabbed a bunch of times. Like really brutally yeah. enough to kill him ten times over or yeah. whatever. Like completely yeah, two different. Un- he was shot by two different guns. Oh, he was. Yeah, that's weird. Well, remember, Marguerite said I yeah. gave him two guns and, and I disposed sh- of two guns. Oh man! All right. Well, I know you did a lot of work for this one. You want to give your resources? <laughs> <laughs> Is that all you have to say? I don't know what to say. We've been saying stuff this whole time. <laughs> seems like it'd be a movie or something yeah it's a pretty wild story there's a couple books about it whatever happened to melanie she did okay she uh-huh. had kids she, she did fine is she still does she mo- keep modeling after that yeah she did whatever happened to audrey i don't know well i didn't find her to be a very interesting character <laughs> I think she's, I think, it, I mean, I could just see, she's just like, yeah, I'll help you get out. Of course you're innocent. And yeah. then just like after a while, you're like, nah, I don't know. You're pretty much acting like someone who probably killed this guy. Yeah, I know. I know. I mean, they would refer to her as a, uh, in the papers uh-huh. as tall, slender, pretty, but not beautiful. Definitely not a Melanie Kane. <laughs> You know, the shame on all these dirty motherfuckers, man. <laughs> the newspapers, man, they just really uh, love to say just outrageous things back in the 70s. Yeah, weird, belittling, hateful shit. <laughs> okay, are you going to give your resources or not? <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Uh, you know, I'm going to be real. Yeah. I definitely read a lot of articles for this and i think people would die if i said all of them so i'll say the ones that i used she did too much work stop why why (laughs) (laughs) it's true love and death on the upper east side by anthony hayden guest this Mm -hmm. is the long form article for the new york magazine we did an article by selwyn robb victim's alleged role in drug case called boon to jacobson's defense that's for the new york times This other really good long-form piece Mm -hmm. for the Los Angeles Times by Bill Christine. That one came out in 1988. That's called Behind Bars, The Odyssey of Buddy Jacobson, Horses, Models, and a Murder Scene. That list sounds like my description for the episode. (laughs) (laughs) 
And Barry Flowers wrote about this case a lot. She had uh, does these really neat long-form crime stories. So they're true crime stories, but they're only about 30 pages. She's oh. kind of cool. It's like uh-huh. if you want something kind of quick and interesting, yeah. she writes really well. Her little short story on this is called Murder of the Horse Trainer's Daughter. That's again by Barry Flowers. And thank you very much to newspapers.com for mm-hmm. archiving a bunch of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of these stories are like recycled AP stories sure, from sure, the sure. 70s with yeah. a little flair added in for locals. <laughs> yeah. um, but there's a lot of cool stuff out there. Newspapers.com is tight. You know, you can just mm-hmm. follow the thread of the thought, you know. <laughs> Real cool. Yeah, Muriel does her research a lot like Muriel plays her jazz. Just going, ba da bow. I loved uh, you for telling me this story. Did you like it? Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Dumbass. Obviously, I liked it. <laughs> I thought it would be right up your alley. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty wild, man. Okay, all right. We're going to stop. Pretty cool. <laughs> Keep embarrassing yourself. I just had a uh, Coke Zero. Nothing can stop me now. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening to Miro's Murders. Miro did all the research and I did all the other stuff. And this podcast was recorded in our living room. To help support the podcast and to unlock exclusive episodes, you know what you have to do. Patreon! Sign up for our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Murders. Find us at Muriel's Murders on social media. That's Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and TikTok. Our DMs are open, and you can email us at murielsmurders at gmail.com. You can also rate and review Muriel's Murders on Apple Podcasts. Wow, that sounds fun. Yeah, it really does help us grow. Um, I'm sure it helps you have a great day also. Yeah, because you know? it's very altruistic. Uh-huh. And if you're listening on Spotify, you can rate us there too, as well as add this episode to a playlist of one of the many podcasts you think are brilliant and then yes. you can share that with your friends oh my that sounds like so fun Muriel why don't you and I do that that you sounds know? like a party we yeah. should do that and also you can share this podcast just with the people in your life like if you're listening to it on your phone shove it in their face or let's say you're just <laughs> hanging out with your friends and you're not even listening to a podcast just shove it in their face or grab their phone and force them to subscribe just whatever kind of fun ways you can to shove this down the throats of those you love who wants to talk put on a podcast all right music is by Mario Castellini find him on Instagram at Castellini Beats. Thank you to Ryan and Ryan at Campfire Media. And if you want more Nick and Muriel, please check out our non-murder podcast, Hella in Your 30s, wherever you get your podcasts. That's it. See you later. Bye. Hi, I'm Michael McMillan. I'm 6'1", and I'm based in Los Angeles. Ever wonder what life is like for the working Hollywood actor? Every week on Slate Your Name, I sit down with actors, creators, and performers to find out how they're coping with the highs and lows of the entertainment industry. Hear Crazy Ex-Girlfriend's Rachel Bloom talk about struggling with auditioning. I think they just weren't good auditions. The feedback from both was like, I was very green and not good. How Tom Everett Scott booked That Thing You Do with Tom Hanks. Here I am going to meet the guy who I basically am like modeling my whole career after. And, and I'm just like riddled with nerves. It's, it's one of those moments where you're just like, oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna sabotage myself. How Rutherford Falls has Janice Schmeeding broke into the comedy world. One way I was able to sort of do that is by sort of giving comedy this space in my life that was just a hobby. And more. Join me every Tuesday for Slate Your Name from Campfire Media and available wherever you get your podcasts. Campfire.